Welcome to It's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I am joined by my co-host, Mr. C.H. Simmons. Hello. Welcome back. That's the third time you've said that. <laughs> this is the third opening you've recorded. <laughs> Are you going to introduce everybody? And Keep Mr. going. Peter, Keep going. And Mr. Peter Crable. Hi, Bob. Bobby Diz. Bobby Dodd. All right. All right. It's good to see you guys. And it's good to be back with our listeners. It's Not good Dead is brought to you by... Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership, instruction, and 21st century school reform. You can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter, and of course, check out the webpage, edsnotdead.com. Boys, this is the pre-holiday show. We're going to take a little break um, and come back in the new year, right? Yes, we are. That's right. I would like to say... That I, uh, since we were receiving our first rounds of snowfall here in the D.C. region, that uh, I did, I did uh, say this earlier in the spring that the snow days would be no longer. You did. You did. Uh, you did I, predict I, that. I, I did write a post on that, which is really. And I was like, at the time, I was like, yeah, yeah, let's post this. And I'm like, oh, what a, I, it's, what dribble it's, that was. <laughs> God. Well, the, 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 the nor'easter that we just got was a big disappointment for the mid-Atlantic region. Meanwhile, meanwhile Binghamton got 40 and a half inches. I know. It was, there's, <laughs> such, there's such a lack of equity with snow. It's ridiculous. It yeah. actually makes me annoyed. People are yeah, all asking about it. Yeah, it makes me annoyed it. too. Yes. Um, every, every meeting I was in this week, what do you think about, what do you think about the, the snow coming up? I was like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> so, so this morning... Um, in in Maryland, uh, for our listeners, would we have had a two hour delay to opening or no school? Two hour delay. Two hour delay. Two hour delay. That's yeah. what I. That's what I thought too. Yeah, and an early not, release yesterday. Yeah, not even a two hour delay or an early. God, it just feels like just this, we're, the we're being cheated. It, it never. It what well, just never go gets old. The like the going into school late or like getting out early. You know when the kids are like yeah. Ah. Like really, on the inside, you're like, yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. There, 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 there were several superintendents who were being shouted out uh, across the nation, who were uh, ceremoniously giving um, snow days out, even though they're all virtual learning. So it's, I thought that was pretty cool. Pretty magnanimous yeah. of them. Yeah. So let me let me read you um, something that one of those superintendents set out to the Jefferson County schools community. Are you ready? Let's hear it. I am ready. Is this this Virginia? uh, I think Jefferson County is, I think it's Virginia. Okay. For generations, families have greeted the first snow day of the year with joy. It is a time of renewed wonder at all the beautiful things that each season holds. A reminder of how fleeting a childhood can be an opportunity to make some memories with your family that you hold on to for life. For all of these reasons and many more, Jefferson County Schools will be completely closed for tomorrow, December 16th, in honor of the first snow day of the year. Wow. Closed for students, closed for virtual, closed for staff. Mm. It has been a year of seemingly endless loss and the stress of trying to make up for that loss. For just a moment, we can all let go of the worry of making up for the many things we missed by making sure this is one thing our kids won't lose this year. So please enjoy a day of sledding and hot chocolate and cozy fires. Take pictures of your kids in snow hats. 
they will outgrow by next year and read books that you have wanted to lose yourself in but haven't had the time. We will return to the serious and urgent business of growing up on Thursday. <laughs> but for tomorrow, go build a snowman. Oh. Wow. Sincerely, Bondi Shea Gibson, EDD superintendent. Wow. Can we get, I am can we get them on the show? I am a fan of yeah. Dr. Shea Gibson. We yeah, should get, amazing. we should, we should, uh, we should get them on the show. Get them on the show. Yes. That was, that was well written and just perfect, wasn't it? It yeah. was perfect. I felt like I was reading Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, that's what I would read when I was a kid in Snow Days. Snow Days equal Calvin and Hobbes for some reason. That's great. All right, we've got a great show tonight. Uh, we are fortunate to have uh, Mr. Greg Cruy, who is currently a social study, middle school social studies teacher in West Virginia. There recently, um, in November, was a really fascinating piece on him, fellas, uh, in the Washington Post about how he has thread the needle with uh, the current political climate in his classroom. Um, he is... Um, uh, an unapologetic Democrat and um, many people in his town know that he's a Democrat and they know where he uh, lives. <laughs> yeah. And um, he, 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 I think he openly describes where he lives as deep red Trump country. Um, and so he's going to hopefully come on the show and talk about what it's like to teach kids during this volatile uh, political time that we're in. Um, so we're excited to have him on the show. Uh, but before we get into that, let's get into our first piece, uh, which was an op-ed in the post. Uh, we need a Marshall plan for our schools. Didn't I say that? Didn't I say we needed a Marshall plan for our schools? Do you you recall that? I do. I I, did. When it came up, I was like, is this legit (laughs) or not? Uh, yeah. So I, again, I was scooped. I, I could have written this op-ed. Um, So we need a Marshall Plan for our schools, uh, and we need it now. It is authored by Richard Richard Carranza, Austin Butner, and Janice Jackson. Uh, Carranza, Butner, and Jackson are superintendents of the nation's three largest school districts, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, respectively. So the upshot of this piece is, I'll read you a quote, it's time to treat the dire situation facing public schools With the same federal mobilization, we have come to expect for other national emergencies such as floods, wildfires, and hurricanes. A major coordinated nationwide effort, imagine a Marshall Plan for Schools, is needed to return children to public schools quickly in the safest way possible. So the authors go on to talk about a massive federal relief package for schools that would cover things like uh, basic building blocks for safe, uh, healthy and welcoming school environments and um, infrastructure for high quality teaching and learning. And um, actually they didn't have a lot of other creative ideas. I was going to say that. I, that was my one critique was it's very white bread. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we need to have money. I, I want to dig a little deeper into the piece. Uh, school-based coronavirus <laughs> testing, contact, contact tracing, uh, mental health support for students, that's big, uh, to help them with the significant trauma they have experienced um, and funding for in-person instruction next summer. It was a little bit of a kind of a, a hodgepodge or a laundry list of, um, of relief 
practices or strategies. Um, but you get the point. There needs to be a massive federal effort, and I assume led at the uh, led by the federal government to um, to help students recover what they've lost during the pandemic. What are what are your thoughts on this? Just uh, open ended, right out of the gate. Yeah, um, I, I was hoping for something. I think a little bit more uh, visionary and all encompassing. So I kind of had to take a step back and be like, all right, well, what what are they asking for? And I think that the things that they are asking for, you know, maybe it's more like a reasonable ask and it's not a pie in the sky type ask. But then I was like, but it's it's like a bare minimum. Like, man, if we can't get this stuff out to schools and to teachers and educators, it's like we're it's it's a problem. So I mean, you know, testing, yeah, there should definitely be ready readily, rapidly available testing. There should be PPE. Um, and then dealing with when kids do come back. I mean, I, we just don't know. I think we don't really, like we think we know. I think we don't really know what kids have been going through and what the sort of like short to medium term um, effects of, of this whole last nine months is going to have on them. So I'm, I'm certainly for about that. But I think the thing that I would like to see when you conjure up the Marshall Plan, um, I know where you're. I know where you're going, Graves. <laughs> it's just something a little bit more um, all-encompassing, I think. And now the Marshall Plan. I was a history major, so excuse me. <laughs> oh. So the Marshall Plan oh, yeah. allocated, according to Wikipedia, about fifteen billion dollars towards Western Europe for the rebuilding of. Ver- now is primarily towards infrastructure, and in, it seems like a lot, but fifteen billion dollars. They talked about this costing $128 billion to do those three or four things that they listed. Seems like a lot of money. But when you look at the Paycheck Protection Program that was enacted in April for like two weeks, any guesses on how many billions of dollars that was? Uh-uh. Just guess. $40 billion. No. $349 billion. Million with an M? No, no, no. Billion. Come on. The government doesn't oh. spend money in millions. <laughs> I think the school improvement grants, the SIGs from TARP were what, 13 billion? And that was in 2008 or nine? Something like that, yeah. So to me, um, the things that they're asking for are totally reasonable, are totally doable and totally acceptable and should be, I would hope, passed without a lot of fuss. But they're Band-Aids, you know what I mean? They're total, they're total reactionary to what's happening, which again, should happen but I would love to see something as part of a bigger, broader mission. Systemic. Um, it, be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think, uh, I, I don't, I don't think we can say enough about the amount of resources that schools already needed prior to the pandemic. So, um, having enough counselors per school, we're, we're, we're way below the, the recommended average of how many counselors we should have per school school psychologists and school uh, personnel who work with students in, their, in terms of socio-emotional learning. Um, having, you know, it costs money to have teachers not teach classes. So, like, in terms of staffing, schools need more money and districts need more money to pay teachers, frankly, not to teach and to plan and to be taking care of the students' that they already are teaching because teaching 150 students is just not, it's not, it's not manageable in a regular time and it's not manageable now. So 
I, you know, I, t I think we do need a Marshall Plan. This particular article was a little disappointing because you have the three, uh, ostensibly the three most important school leaders in the, in, in the entire country, except for Dear Betsy, of course. <laughs> and they're providing a, a, a milk toast um, op-ed about just getting money, but without any specific and innovative ideas on how to, how to really bring it forward beyond just the $125 million, billion. I, I, I'm with you. I, I'll defer to you as, the, as, as, as history majors. As, as Mr. I'm not a history major. <laughs> Help me out here. I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot about the Marshall Plan, but um, th this doesn't really it feel, I feel like they kind of misused the Marshall they Plan. They totally misused it. It has nothing to do with the Marshall Plan. Yeah, <laughs> the I reaction mean, to COVID. This, this, this is about COVID getting plan. us back into school. This is, not, yeah. this is not recovery from what has happened to schools. No. Um, and that's what I thought I was going to read about, which is, like, like you're pointing out, both of you, some kind of innovative um, – long-term far-reaching recovery plan to build schools back up. Yeah. I mean, what's, they don't say anything in here. What, what's going to happen. And we know this is going to happen when local and state budgets drop because tax revenue is, is, you know, trickling in, mm -hmm. in, in a, a year from now, two years from now and, and school systems can't hire more teachers. Um, I mean, there should be so much more in this about about how to how to make schools more robust to help kids make up for what they've lost. Yeah, so one one of the most dangerous things I think that can happen with funding for schools is reactionary programs that solve immediate short term issues or address the short term issues, but don't really change or address any of like the root cause issues because then people can come back and say the people that are looking for like oh school we already spend too much money on schools the betsy devosses of the world this is ammunition for them mm -hmm. you know where well we spent 128 billion dollars on schools and what did we get for it uh, they're going to say that no matter what and no matter how many i, many, I know but i'm just saying the answer in this case is like well we got kids back in safely and they didn't die i mean that's pretty good <laughs> But then it's, well, well, you know, what about our math tests on PISA or, you know, whatever the next kind of thing is. And, you know, one of the things that I was, I was hoping for, or, and I'm still hoping for at some point, but, you know, from the Biden administration or for whoever the next um, secretary of education is, is it's, an, as I mentioned, an all-encompassing plan. And, you know, kind of like one of the models that you look back on or that I looked back on to say that this is something that I'm thinking about is, is Lyndon Johnson. Is part of his great society. Are you guys familiar with that at all? I'm not familiar with this man. No, no and I don't, I've not heard anything about the great society. So it was his plan to eliminate poverty. So the war <laughs> on poverty and eliminate racial injustices. Right. And so it was a lot of things. It was part of the education was Head Start. There was volunteer programs. There was job cores. It built on a lot of the ideas of um, Roosevelt's new deal. So there was, there was initiatives across the board, not just in education, that were all hand in hand working together to address issues. And like how we treat education now is like, you know, education is just going to be this silo or this bucket. Mm -hmm. And housing policy is going to be this silo or this bucket and kind of so on and so forth down the line. So that's what I'm really hoping to see 
um, a true Marshall Plan that really takes into account um, things beyond just the four walls of the school building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the Great Society got um, electricity to parts of Appalachia that had never had it. Right. I mean, when 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 the when the school closure first hit in March, when the pandemic was was really you know beginning, um, we talked on this show about broadband internet access. Yep. Uh, there's nothing in this article about something like that um, in, in the event that we go through this again. I mean, because I do think one of the vestiges of the shutdown is going to be online learning for students, um, whether to catch them up or just as a part of the way we educate kids in the future. Yeah. So would you all, um, would you all consider things like extended school days and an 11th month in the school year to pay for those kinds of things for, for in this Marshall plan? Absolutely. I mean, we, at this point, we should be moving to a full year school schedule it's way past due for that. And that's going to, again, it's going to cost money to pay for teachers and to pay for salaries and the amount of time that needs to be made up. I, I, I don't think that needs to be, I, I struggle with this because it's like, yeah, students are learning. They're, they're, they're losing learning, but I also don't want to come back and do a full bum rush of, I'm not really sure how to say it, but to a point where it just, it's so overwhelming for teachers and students because we already feel bad about where the kids are as it stands. And, and, and to, to Crable's point, how about higher education? So if you look at the data just locally from in the, in the DMV, for example, um, and you look at the spike in the number of D's and E's that students have. Well, those D's and E's are not going to go away. They're a part of a kid's transcript, right? So that affects their ability to, to go beyond high school yeah. and where they get to go to school. So where do, where do our colleges and universities going to, going to help at all or change anything that they do to work with K-12? Um, that, to me, Crable, that would be a part of the plan. Well, I think they're going to have go, to. I'm going to throw it out there and say, no, they're not well, going to. So I, I saw an article today, though, that said, um, like, uh, enrollment plummeted um, first yeah, quarter of, of this year yeah. um, uh, among, you know, four-year colleges and universities, but actually really drastically amongst community colleges. Wow. So I do think that they're feeling the impact of it because a lot of kids are saying, well, you know, why do this experience online? I could just push it off a year. I could work, I could do this, whatever the case may be, right. take a gap year, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the kids do these days. They're um, on TikTok. Yeah, make TikTok videos. Yeah. But, um, but they did see a drastic decline. And so I do wonder if it's going to be like a one-off decline where once the pandemic is under control, vaccines are more widespread, and then everybody comes flocking back or whether they are going to have to do a little bit um, of sort of soul searching, I guess, to say uh, – you know, is, is business as usual going to continue to work based on all of the the, the crazy mitigating circumstances um, of the pandemic? Yeah, I think I think you're seeing a, a deep de- decline in enrollment because families can't afford it, or they're afraid they're not going to be able to afford it. So they're going straight to work. I have a lot of students who are uh, who, who previous past students who had to go straight into the workforce because they don't have the funds to actually do that. So they're they're staying with their families 
because of health reasons or whatever to take care of them and they're working. All right. Well, you know what? We are going to ask uh, our our guest, Greg Cruy, when we come back about um, he's he's in the thick of it in West Virginia. He might have some ideas about how to um, support schools in the future as we as we try to bounce back from the pandemic. Uh, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with special guest Greg Cruy. Right, fellas, uh, we are incredibly excited to welcome uh, teacher Mr. Greg Cruy on Ed's Not Dead. Uh, we all three, I think, recently read an article in the Washington Post, um, a great feature on the work that Greg is doing um, as a middle school teacher in West Virginia and uh, how he has been um, front and center to this national debate, political debate. Um, and he's had to mediate it in the classroom with students. So um, we're, we're happy to have Greg on the show. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, it's good to be here. All right, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna tell our listeners a little bit about Greg. Uh, he's a middle school uh, teacher in West Virginia. He has a variety of certifications, um, although we need to make sure he gets that admin certification re-upped. <laughs> Uh, he's worked at every grade. Maybe, maybe we'll we'll support the fifty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. From one of our one of our big uh, endorsers. This, this podcast is losing money, so I don't know if we can support that. <laughs> Greg is a union activist who serves as president of his county's uh, local for the American Federation of Teachers (AFT). He moderates the West Virginia page for the Badass Teachers Association, which I want to join. Greg is a career changer who, at the age of sixty has about 20 years in public schools. He has a BA in psychology and an MS in education from Marshall University, a certificate in educational leadership and a graduate diploma in general linguistics from the Australian National University. Uh, He has lived on four continents. Once again, uh, Greg Curry, welcome to Ed's Not Dead. Thank you, thank you very much. All right, let's jump in. You recently had the article that I referenced in the post describing what it's like to teach students about the election in a deep red Trump area. Can you tell us some of the changes you've noticed about how students have reacted? Um, you know, the main thing is that they're more engaged this year than they've ever been when it comes time to teach that. Um, they were very engaged last year when we had all the candidates in the primaries and, and I try and talk about issues uh, and I had uh, lots of fans for some of the uh, of the candidates. Andrew Yang had a cult following in the middle school at my, uh, you know, and um, the Yang gang. That's it. That was it. Uh, and there, there were there were a few others. But this year, it's been uh, less curiosity and enthusiasm, and and more something more intense than that. Passion, vigor. I don't know what to call it. Uh, it's it's been a little bit more emotional. <clears throat> so one of the things you wrote about um, in the article was, you know, as a teacher and certainly as a social studies teacher, you look at sources and reputable sources and really analyzing that. Is this any different than like middle schoolers in the past? I mean, I would not necessarily say the middle schoolers are vetting sources, you know, with vigor. Um at any at any point, but have you noticed any particular change 
um, when it comes to that or how have you tried to address that? Um, I, I can't say that I've noticed more interest in sources per se. The kids hear rumors repeated and they come to school uh, either to tell me that these things are true or to ask me whether I think these things are true. And uh, you guys know the vast number of conspiracy theories that are out there right now. Um, is, is a computer system changing votes to dead people vote in Michigan? Um, are there alternate electors? Are there yada, yada, yada? I could go on. Uh, and um, you ask them and put the burden on them and, and say, well, well, where are you hearing that? Well, you know, can you show me a story and we can look at the story? And they're like, dang homework. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, that's really, I, we don't, we, we end up shifting instead of saying, uh, what do you think is true? What do you think is true? And spreading rumors in a circle, we end up saying, let's look that up and, and, and see who thinks that's true and who doesn't. And um, the kids, you know, I mean, it's human nature. The kids would rather keep repeating the rumors in a circle than, than actually go and find out what's true because the latter is work. Right. And what do you, um, what, you know, as a trusted, as the trusted adult in the room, like the, the students trust you, you have personal relationships with students. So, uh, you know, oftentimes as we know, those personal relationships transcend political views in a lot of ways. So how, how do the students treat, uh, you know, your, the more critical aspect of trying to find out if something is, true or not, or debunking those things? Um, they listen to what I have to say. They, you know, we, my, my first uh, uh, sentence about half the time is, well, let's go Google that. <laughs> and <clears throat> let's, let's see what we, we find. One of my biggest struggles is convincing them that Google is not a source. <laughs> Google is a list of possible sources, and you right. have to decide which one. Because most of the time, if the child has left his own devices, all he does is look at Google. He never clicks on anything. Uh, and so I have to teach him to actually click on something and go read it. Uh, the, um, it it's, we're blessed in as much as uh, uh, we, we have some pretty good technology in most of our classrooms. There's a big smart display up on the wall in almost every room in the school. And so we have the resources and the ability to just say, let's go look that up. So how, how uh, kind of follow up, following up on that piece, like how, trans, how transparent are you with your own political, uh, your own political views and opinions with students? I don't think that's really a choice on my part. They show up knowing what I think and who I'm for. Um, <laughs> you know, social media is transparent for me, whether I want to be or not. And my choices are to either participate in the system or to hide and be quiet because somebody might find out what I believe. Uh, and uh, the, the latter doesn't really seem like an option to me. So, you know, I come into school and the kids tell me what I think or ask me, is it, is it true that you like Biden? Just, just be honest with us, Mr. Three. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, they, they know where I live there. We used to have a bus driver who would do most of the field trips and, my house is visible from the U.S. highway that the kids go down to, you know, to get anywhere. And the bus driver would blow her horn and point out the window and say, and there's where Mr. and Mrs. Crewy live. <laughs> you know, so the kids know which house is mine and what sign I have in my yard. And transparency really isn't an option. 
So, so let me just take that, Greg, a step further. Um, Cause we have this conversation uh, the three of us, and then we have it online with some other teachers that listen to the show and, um, and, and we have online exchanges with, what are your thoughts on whether teachers should be transparent about their political views with students? And then can, do you think teachers can do this in ways that don't compromise a culture of free expression or safety or truth in the classroom? In, um, in a deep red state in, you know, where I am, uh, nobody who, if, if we had a, the teachers that we have that support president Trump, and wanted to see him reelected, nobody would ask them that question. Uh, they would be part of the same club, group, whatever, clique as the kids. And the kids would, you know, it's like, you like Trump, I like Trump. You like Trump, I like Trump. Uh, and uh, if you say no, all of a sudden that question comes up. Got it. Uh, you know, so, so there's, a, there's an issue of equity there. Yeah. Uh, what is it that makes it wrong for me to to not hide the fact that I support Biden when other teachers in the building uh, don't hide the fact that they support Trump? I don't think it's possible to hide those sorts of things at this point. But but more importantly, I don't think it's fair to the kids. I don't think that the you know the children that I have, um, I'm the parent on the spot to a group of kids in my community that over half of them don't live with either biological parent. They live with a grandparent or a foster parent or the relative that would take them or whatever. Uh, And, and I am in some ways a parental figure for them. And I have to be open and share my life at a number of levels, you know, and and I'm not talking about um, forming inappropriate relationships or, you know, but, but it's more than just, it's not like they're little bitty college students and I'm having, I'm teaching a class. Uh, I, I'm responsible for their well-being, not just their education. Right. Uh, and I have to be personal about that. I have to be willing to be known um, if I'm going to build relationships with them. Yeah. And so the, I'm, I'm curious, the experience that you just described about kind of like everybody being out in the open um, and then the question coming up, for example, if you say, you know, you support Biden, is that something that maybe happened in 2012 or 2008, or is it a more recent phenomenon in your experience? Well, I, I should make clear that, you know, I enjoy telling people this. I am a recovering math teacher. <laughs> I have been a social studies teacher for five years. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> um, it, uh, it happened some in 2016 um, and, you know, the candidate then was President Trump. Um, in 2015, my first year as a social studies teacher, I was actually in a commercial for Hillary. Oh, wow. Uh, and, um, I, you know, they, they flew me to New Hampshire to spend two days at an education roundtable. Uh, and I was in a video with her that circulated on YouTube. Uh, but, um, and, and the kids find that. The kids mm-hmm. know that's out there because that's the nature of social media. So did you take her emails or <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's... <laughs> too soon? Is it too soon? Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry. All right. Uh, so... I asked her I asked her a question and the question was, Will you, if you're elected, support community schools? And she said yes. And I hope Joe Biden picks up there. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a good segue for the next. Yeah, that is, that, a good segue. that is a good segue. <laughs> so one of the things we've been doing this show now, Greg, for for four years, and so it's obviously overlapped with um, the most recent administration. And um, back when we started the show, the three of us as public educators all had the sense that um, there was we had just gone through a, a period of time. Um, a lot of which happened during a democratic eight year administration where teachers were demonized nationally. Um, charters were embraced. Um, there were uh, unions were, were, were being, were being battered to and fro. Um, but then over the course of the last few years, we've seen those tides that tide turn a little bit and we've seen a crest of sympathy and support towards teachers culminating for support for teacher strikes across the country, which we've documented on the show over the last few years. What's been your experience with your community stance towards teachers um, recently? Going back and thinking over the last three years, four years, we had a lot of support during the strike. I haven't really seen that fade but all relationships at this point seem more distant because we're now in a situation where um, teachers, uh, uh, the public doesn't get in the building anymore. Um, You know, it's, it's like the communication that I have with people is email, Facebook, or if you want something really heartwarming and intimate, you get to talk to them on the telephone for a few minutes. Um, And, um, every relationship seems more distant, but I, I don't think that that translates into a loss of support. During the strike, we had lots of support. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, go ahead. So I, um, you'd, you'd mentioned, I want to kind of, our last sort of topic here is um, school reform. You mentioned community schools. Uh, so you wrote the largest community schools innovation grant in uh, West Virginia that helped hire the first full-time community school facilitator in the state. So tell us a little bit more about that in community schools. And then um, if you could just kind of like segue into any thoughts about school reform in general. Okay. Um, You know, I I heard one of the past podcasts, you guys were talking about the burden that gets placed on people to, on schools to to do more. Uh, And when I think of community schools, I want that burden. It's, it's not that that burden is the problem. That burden, to me, is probably the solution, <clears throat> or at least part of it, excuse me, part of it for public education. Um, I'd like to be funded to, um, mm. to, to serve those purposes. I'd like to see schools, especially in poor neighborhoods and rural neighborhoods, be one-stop shops. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see medical centers set up inside of schools. Uh, and I'd like to see counseling, trauma counseling, um, you know, the, and we, we have that. <clears throat> we don't have a medical center at my school. We worked very hard to get one and came up short on that. But, but we do see lots of trauma counseling. We have a dentist that shows up at our school uh, and provides services right there in the building wow. uh, for students. And, and those sorts of things in rural communities in particular, um, are, are what will be the life of the school. And I, to me, it's, it's like 
you know, the school is the perfect spot for that. Um, the, the grant that we wrote uh, paid, paid for services and for the salary of, of somebody to coordinate those services uh, for three years, I think. It was a $300,000 grant. Um, and um, the nature of public-private partnerships is part of our problem. Uh, as soon as the money was drawn down, it became more difficult for private partners to cooperate with uh, the school system. And, and those, dif- those, those difficulties were structural. Mm-hmm. They were legal barriers that are there in code. It's not like somebody changed or whatever. Uh, it was accounting law and personnel law and things of that nature. Um, School improvement, you know, the the point of community schools is that school improvement is a social issue first, and it's an educational issue second, because the things that lead to poor academic achievement are mostly outside the school. Whether you're talking about poverty and unemployment or poor nutrition, family instability, health care and addiction issues, which we have lots of, Um, McKinney-Vento homelessness and inadequate housing. Uh, high rates of educational disabilities, those things are rooted outside the school. Uh, And, um, you know, how we measure school improvement at this point lacks validity and reliability and is very shallow and short-sighted. We measure it with a test. And we change the test every three to four years so that we can't consistently say, see how you were doing five years ago? It's like, uh, I don't know how you make that transition. Um, so to me, making schools a community service location, a one-stop shop is part of the solution. It's, it's not a burden. It's the goal. Well, well, well said. Amen. Yeah. I guess that standardized test doesn't measure whether a kid has adequate dental or, or medical care. No, it's a care. No. Go ahead, Greg. You had something to say. Well, I just I started to say, you know, the the biggest issue we face is with the underlying assumption to the very phrase school reform, because, you know, I tell people you reform a delinquent, you reform a drunk. Uh, Why? Why not just say that we're going to make some progress and admit that we're working in a a field of expanding knowledge and that we might need new approaches and new standards in the future. Uh, Cause that's like, of, that's like 30 words, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Well, school reform and, is two words. <laughs> um, and I mean, just the attitude that underlies that, you know, that's, that's the, whenever somebody starts out with the phrase school reform, I tense up at that point. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's and that's. I think we all agree that that's that's a myth out there. That that I don't, we're we're not quite sure when it started, but that that public schools needed to be reformed, yeah. um, and and it and it lives on, unfortunately. Um, yeah. Greg, Greg uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online or anywhere else. Uh, I'm on Facebook and uh, just uh, search for me by name. There's only one or two of us in the world. Uh, Greg Cruy, C-R-U-E-Y. I'm on Twitter, but I don't tweet very much. I mostly use it to read what other people say. Um, That's pretty much it. I have a YouTube channel, but uh, half of that is church music. (laughs) All right.
right. Uh, well, it's been great to have you on It's Not Dead, Greg. Greg. We're honored uh, to have you as a guest. And I know I speak on behalf of the fellows that um, uh, we're impressed with what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate you're, that. You're, you're, you're serving students in the best way. And um, we'll, we'll keep tabs on you and get you on the show again in the future. Uh, thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm, now, before I go, y'all y'all always play that uh, 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 thing where you make fun of standardized testing by asking somebody multiple choice questions. <laughs> I've been dreading that all day. You're not going to do that to me? <laughs> Let's see. I do have a quiz about uh, advanced placement. <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, Greg, you should consider yourself fortunate. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you listened to the show and listened to what people have to go to, but you, you, you got off. You I, th- got I think off we, we, reach, we reached an apex last show or two shows ago where every question was like a four paragraph question. It was, uh, I got a lot of flack for it. I got a lot yeah. of flack for it. So, so we took, we took a break, but okay. Um, okay. Uh, all right, Greg, uh, take care of yourself. Stay safe. <laughs> Happy you. holidays. And thanks for coming on the show. You too. Thank you for having me. Bye. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I am still here with my co-hosts. Casey Much to your chagrin. Peter Crable. Hey, hey. Hey. Special thanks to Greg Cruy. He was awesome, wasn't he, fellas? He was, yeah. Was great he, tweeted about, he tweeted about our interview already, like right, <laughs> at, right after he got off. Seriously? Yeah. And he, and he said that he never, he doesn't really use Twitter. He just follows what other people say. But you, guilted, was, you guilted him into wow, it. Wowie, wee <laughs> hey, what happened with the um, what happened with the quiz that Mister Simmons was supposed to have for Mister Crewy? <laughs> yeah, I thought. What happened? Don't, don't we usually do that? I, I've taken Smith, a hiatus from I've taken a hiatus from quizzes this week for all parties because of the way that I was treated by my co-host last time. <laughs> I thought at the bottom of the show notes there was one for me and Robbie. Wasn't no? There? I've decided to I've oh. mixed that one. Uh, oh, is that, that how you is that is that how you've won the quizzes in the past? You cheated. I haven't won any quizzes. You cheated? I've like I've gotten zero on like the last three quizzes. Well, 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 well. Yeah. Well. Anyway, we're gonna we'll get Mr. Sims. We'll get uh, Mr. Curry back on the show, and you'll have a quiz for him next time. I will. I will. He was a, he was an excellent guest. Uh, I think it was fascinating to hear about his work with students in um, West Virginia. He's he's doing the heavy lifting, and um, we hadn't had a teacher on in quite a while, had we? He's followed by Barack Obama. Really? And Randy Weingarten. Well, there's there's a bunch of pictures of him and uh, and Randy out there. And he's followed by Edutopia, who also follows me. <laughs> what? Well, all right then. Edutopia, Edutopia, Edutopia follows you. Edu Edutopia follows me. <laughs> okay, that's. Uh, he just went down the rabbit hole on his phone. He's, <laughs> I did. I we, did. We, we I lost did. him. Uh, all right. So uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, President-elect Biden, um, he is the president-elect. Uh, the Finally. Elect- the the electoral, electoral college let some white smoke go from their building, and he's, <laughs> he's now the – 
He's now going to be the next president of the United States. He is rapidly filling all of those um, important uh, cabinet positions. And uh, one of which he has not filled yet is the secretary of education. And um, as a result of this election, we lost one of the most popular segments of our show, Dear Betsy. Um, wah, wah. She's not wah, going wah. far. I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to mock the new Secretary of Education like we did <laughs> Betsy over the last four years. But uh, there are two folks, at least according to the Washington Post, that have emerged as front runners. Are you ready, fellas? I'm ready. ready. All right. The first is Leslie T. Fenwick. Dean of the Howard University School of Education and a professor of educational policy and leadership. And the second is uh, Miguel Cardona, who last year was named the top education official in Connecticut. Not quite sure. I I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a title, top education official in Connecticut. (laughs) It is a little strange Um, that they didn't just say superintendent or, you know. uh, the The Post points out the situation remains fluid. And no decisions have been made. Mr. Crable, that supports your theory that these are just names that are potentially being thrown out. Um, But Biden promised, as you'll recall, to choose a public school educator as secretary, um, which the Post says raised expectations that the nominee will come from the world of K-12 schools. He's also expected to name a person of color to the Post. And most of the people considered have been black or Latino. Fenwick is a black woman and Cardona is a Latino man. Both have experience as classroom teachers, though Fenwick has worked as a dean and a scholar in higher ed. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that um, Fenwick has been fairly outspoken about education reform initiatives from the past, namely race from the top during the uh, Obama administration. Um, so that's garnered some attention. And uh, here's a quote from Fenwick. These schemes are often viewed as new and innovative, but when you look at the history of these schemes, and I use the word schemes purposefully, hey, this reminds me of what Greg Curry said. Mm-hmm. You find that they are rooted in resistance to the Brown legal decision. Um, that was referencing uh, schemes that drain money from public schools driven by people looking to profit from public education. Um, Mr. Siddons, you'll like this. Fenwick was a middle school science teacher. That's right. And a rookie teacher of the year in Toledo, her hometown. So she has walked the walk, if you will, right? And I think she got her elementary ed, one of her degrees from UVA. Okay. All right. There you go. Cardona was named Connecticut's education education commissioner last year. Uh, began his career, let's hear it for elementary, as a fourth grade teacher. Um, and he became the youngest principal in the state at 28. He almost almost beat my dad. And uh, he 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 actually uh, became Connecticut. Connecticut became the first state to require school or high schools to offer courses in Black and Latino studies, which I thought was pretty awesome. And he was principal of the year in 2012. So these are both educational leaders that have um, earned their chops in the classroom, in public schools, and. Um, administratively. Uh, so it's, 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 these are two possibilities. What are your, what are your reactions to Cardona and Fenwick? I'm, I'm particularly intrigued, um, by, um, Leslie Fenwick just because, uh, it would be such a, a start 
departure from the Obama era policies, which obviously Biden was a part of. And I wonder if even the fact that she's considered um, in, in the running, if that is sort of an implicit um, uh, recognition that some of the policies that they pursued were uh, wrongheaded, maybe is, is a good term. Mm-hmm. Wrong, wrongheaded is a very kind of old person, but a good term. <laughs> yeah. And so th- I think that is particularly interesting to me. Um, so I, I don't know because it would be, you know, there is such an interesting, and I've talked about this before, an interesting dynamic when it comes to like charter schools and school choice where so many cities, which are predominantly Democrat, have embraced school choice. But then now there's a big backlash against school choice from some people, but I'm not sure whether like that's Democrats or Republicans or urban or rural. So I just think it, it would bring a really interesting dichotomy um, because we know what it wouldn't be. We know that they wouldn't embrace those programs, but I don't know what they would embrace. And kind of going back to the first statement, I think um, that is, is fairly intriguing to me to say, well, I know what we're not going to do um, and we're not going to do that. So it kind of opens the possibilities for what else it could be. Um, I think with Miguel Cardona, I did a little bit of reading on him. He seems a little bit more of an unknown, kind of like a newcomer to the scene. Um, I mean, how, how the Post article framed it was he has put a lot of emphasis on getting kids back into the school building and that maybe his short-term expertise would be kind of with that mission um, of getting everyone back in school. So Biden recently said he wants all kids back in school by May 1st. So I wonder if, if you know, that kind of brought him onto the scene or, uh, or, or what. And beyond that, um, just from what I could read, you know, he's written pretty extensively and wrote his doctoral dis- dissertation about English language learners um, and about kind of doing better for English language learners um, uh, systematically and programmatically as well. But hey, look, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in all the people that, whose names are being bandied about. They also brought up Johanna Hayes, um, who we talked about on the show. Um, they talked about Michael Lomax, president and chief executive of the United Negro College Fund, Eloy Ortiz Oakley, chancellor of the California Community Colleges System. I think I'm just intrigued, and I, I would hope that we don't go back um, to the to – the, I can't even think of what the it was. Arnie the, Duncans. I, yeah, not even Arnie Duncan per se, but just the – what was the policy, ESSA? And, and just yeah. some of the stuff that just didn't – it just – Race to the top. It didn't, yeah, it didn't do anything. You know what right. I mean? Well, um, Essa, Essa was the half-hearted extension of race to the top. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the horse was out of the barn by the time Essa came along, and there was, no, there was not really any stomach for federal education policy at that point. Two other candidates inside the Beltway, as they say, um, that have come up and have gotten a lot of attention are Lily Escalenson Garcia, who stepped down in September as president of NEA. And of course, our friend, friend of Ed's Not Dead, Randy Weingarten, longtime president of the American Federation of Teachers. Um, apparently, Ms. Garcia uh, has made it pretty clear she wants the job. Um, Randy, who's not low-key about much, uh, but has <laughs> apparently been low-key about interest in this position. No, nope. I, I would like to talk. I talk about Leslie Fenwick a little bit before we move on to the. Okay, the, go ahead. Uh, if I may, the, she is currently 
professor at Howard University. I think her promotion to Ed Secretary would say a lot in a lot of different ways. One of which is uh, the the kind of support that we as a, as a society and as a country need to provide HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities need. Uh, we need someone like Miss Fenwick, Dr. Fenwick, who would be an incredible advocate for HBCUs from the top. And one of the things that we mentioned on the previous show was there were some comments that I got in a Twitter uh, reply back about why there, there was someone advocating for, we need someone from higher education to be the ed secretary. And my question was, why? Why is that important? And a bulk of the fun, the money that goes into the Department of Education actually goes to higher education. So having someone like Dr. Fenwick at the Department of Education, I think would be would send a, an incredibly powerful message that HBCUs are necessary, they are important, and they need to be funded and, and supported by our, our uh, education department from the very top. You know, one of the things that has kind of uh, crossed my mind in all of this um, is how, how big of a role do we want the federal government to have in schools? And actually, I, I didn't get a chance to ask uh, Greg Cruy this. I, I was wanting to, didn't didn't quite get the chance, but you know, he talked about community schools and that's, that's pretty like hyper local. You know what I mean? Yeah. An epicenter for the community where kids come for, where families come for all variety of services. Mm. I'm not, I, I don't know, you know, and I'm not saying like, I'm not sure, like I don't, I think it's a bad idea, but I'm just not sure how much federal money is involved in that and whether federal money should be involved in that or, if the federal money was to be involved in that, like how many strings would be attached. And in some ways, and it's almost like perverse to say, but like it's kind of been nice the last four years not having new initiatives, not having, um, you know, new meetings to go to. I mean, Robbie, like how many steering committee meetings have you gone to where you've talked about AYP and you've had to look at individual kids and whether they met three or four out of the five different subcategories, you know, like that stuff sucks. (laughs) You know, and that, that, I do think there's that a is there part and parcel of fed, federal, the federal government education reform. There, there is certainly, All right, so you've but just there just, are, there is a lot of funding that comes You've just to described districts. two phenomena. I'm interested since I'm talking. Um, <laughs> the, the, the first you described is the last four years is what I would term neglect. The, the, what, what you but Benign neglect or just neglect? Yeah, uh, neglect. No, not benign neglect. It's, there was nothing benign about uh, Betsy DeVos's. It's benign. It was it was malignant of of public neglect. schools, and, and and what you talked about prior to that was abuse. So we've had abuse and we've had neglect. <laughs> um, I mean, No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top in some ways was were, were both coercive and abused public schools. Um, and and then we had an education secretary who just completely neglected them. Yeah. So, uh, no, I don't think neglect was a good thing. I, I just because we didn't get any attention doesn't mean, you know, I mean, we the schools didn't get helped over the last four years. And um, no, I don't miss those kinds of meetings. Um, but to your point, I mean, Title One is a huge federal program. Title One. Yeah strikes at the heart of supporting um, 
students who are in poverty in public schools locally. Um, I definitely think there's a federal role. If, if I'm not saying I know a lot about community schools, but I think the I think the the federal government could support those. And there's there there's block grants that are provided to schools from the federal government that funded my previous position as a teacher, as a teacher coach. Uh, a lot of I would have to you know I would get the things that you have to sign for the federal funds that come through. So I don't know if it was Title Four or if it was Title I can't remember exactly what it was, but there are block grants that are provided by the Department of uh, Education that I think need to continue. And I think the more that we have that kind of money coming through and allowing the districts and local districts to choose how they use that money in this, in the certain scopes that are provided through the, through ESSA, I think that's positive. I I think having race to the top or anything like that, that coercive accountability is not helpful for schools. You used my phrase. I did, even though you interrupted me. (laughs) And I think, I think to your point, you know, certainly all title one and there's title nine. I mean, there's a bunch of different federal education programs and I wasn't saying or implying that those should lapse. I guess I was just saying um, oftentimes when new administrations come in, they want to put their stamp on education with some new programs, with some innovative programs, with Mm -hmm. just something that's like, this is our thing. This is what we think is going to work. I've not really seen or heard any of those that particularly excite me. I I don't even, I, I couldn't even name five off the top of my head. I don't think. And right. so that's why I said, you know, in in that sense, the sort of DeVos era where there wasn't, um, although, yes, I do believe as a whole, she was harmful to public education, certainly in, in her platform and the way that she spoke about public schools. The fact that there was, um, although she tried, but failed mm-hmm. to like enact large scale ed reform was in some ways nice or was in some way fine. Yeah. And that's, that was just my point was... Uh, you know, I, new new regime, new programs. What is it? I, I I get it. And as educators, we all, I mean, we've all lived through new programs, and at times those feel onerous and like a burden. Um, but I think you know when you when you we could think beyond programs though, and we could also think about policy. Mm. Um, you know, over the last four years, not only did that administration gut. Um, the civil rights division of the department of justice, but it, it, it gutted civil rights policy uh, in the department of education. Um, and I, I mean, I think there's a a role for, you know, like Dr. Fenwick, as you've mentioned, Casey, um, you know, the assault on Brown versus board and how that's happened over the decades in ways that you can't even really tell it's an assault, but it is. I mean, we've talked about the resegregation of public schools, on this show at nauseum for four years. I mean, I think the Department of Ed can have a very active role, not just in spending money, but in 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 legislation and policy that is pro-public school and supports public schools and and students who have been traditionally underserved. Yeah, and there and uh, I did read that they the Biden administration is expecting uh, even departments that would ha- would not have necessarily have a connection to maybe climate change le- legislation and policy, but they should have that in their, in their actual policies and actual practices and departments. Uh, and I think that would be a, a really important part of the um, Department of Education's, you know, guidance to schools for science education and history education and, and teaching climate change and pushing 
um, the fact that we are facing this existential crisis. So I think there's a lot of real positive power that can come from, from that role. I'm, I'm, after we've had this discussion, I'm kind of psyched about these, these folks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think especially, um, I think Casey's got me on the, the Fenwick train now. All right. Yeah. <laughs> on the, on the Dr. Fen- and, and Dr. Fenwick is local. I mean, she is, a- yeah. Howard, um, that living in the area, uh, I, th- I, th- I think she would be a great pick. All right. Um, so stay tuned, uh, by the next episode in the new year in 21, um, we'll talk about the new education secretary, won't we fellas? Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to get somebody on. I've just, I just decided this five seconds ago. Once, once it's named, we're going to get somebody on from the department of ed to, to answer all these questions that we just brought up about what's going to happen. All right. They're, all right. Their well, first hundred days. <laughs> you're known for booking great guests. So, um, yeah, I do look great, Gus. You're right. Thank you. Put a lot of work into that. Uh, Mr. Mr. Sins, he, he, Mr. Crable, he is a killer guest booker, isn't he? Yes, he is. Guest booker. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Casey. Um, all right. Uh, let's do a few updates before we close the show. Um, Mr. Siddons, how's your interview pod series going? I can't for the life of me remember the name of it. And when is it going to be? Ah, it's called The Pandemic Pass. It's, pro- it's probably going to be debuting uh, in January. Okay. Nice. Very nice. Um, yeah. And and I since we're building our media empire, do we have any other updates on some of our uh, brother or sister pods that, that we are in we do not. Those are very close to the vest, but we will okay. just discuss those off air. All right. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> one thing I've discovered is it's very hard to uh, do a podcast when you're not the one doing it. You're like, oh, I I don't control everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Makes it a little challenging. All right, the holidays are here. Christmas is a week away. Um, when when this episode comes out, it'll just be a few days away. Mr. Craves, you first. Um, do you all celebrate Christmas in the house? What do you do in the Crable household? Yeah, yeah. Um, I am not religious, even uh, as clo- as far away as you can be. But I do. But love Christmas, Christmas is such a religious holiday, Peter. I know. It's the I love the pagan rituals. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we. Um, what so about you, Hanukkah? Yeah, so uh, this year was the first year where we really kind of did did some candle lighting and uh, Jenna bought dreidels and some gelt for the kids and uh, spun some dreidels and the kids asked 100,000 times if they could eat the chocolate and we screamed no at them and then they ate it anyway. Yeah, so it was just a success all around. Had some latkes uh, one night. Um, so yeah, it was good and so growing up, I uh, we went. My family was is from Ohio, so we would always go and spend like Christmas Eve with my mom's family and Christmas Day with my dad's family. Um, so this year uh, we're going to have like a big Christmas Eve dinner, um, and then we're going to do the Jewish Christmas Day and do uh, Chinese takeout and a movie. Awesome! Yeah, that's that's great. But you're not going to? Are you doing the the strict? uh pandemic rules of no no extended family just the just uh, my 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 dad and stepmom who are local here um are going to come over nice um hopefully my brother doesn't listen to the pod cuz they were originally supposed to go out to uh San Francisco to see him but just didn't seem like a good idea so i don't want him getting all bitter that they're they're going to be coming here instead nice Whoops. well that'll be that that that'll be nice all right uh ch Siddons, are you traveling to west virginia 
We, I think so. We'll see. We're going to get tested next week. And okay. uh, yeah, stay there for a week or two. I don't know. And this is free to second, second, second Christmas. That's right. Except last year we had no snow. So she hasn't experienced snow yet until today, yesterday. So per, nice. Pearl, you know, she, she was live, whatever, when it snowed two years ago. But she, uh, yesterday she was very excited, but she kept calling it sand. Let's go play in the sand. Like, no, 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 dear. Snow. And she was like, yeah, yeah, let's go throw sand. And I was like, okay. Tell us about the Dodd family. The Dodd family does Christmas pretty big. Yeah, Santa's up there on the roof. You guys have seen Santa on the roof before, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I have to say. Do you go up there and do that? Yeah, I, thank you for asking. I don't know. I think this may have been the last year. I was going to say that. That should have been done years ago. Yeah, at 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 fifty two years of age, um, when you only get up on a ladder, even if it's only about fifteen feet off the ground, but when you only do it once a year, it's not like it's <laughs> it doesn't feel very comfortable. No. Um, the, the the key part is the pivot from the top rung onto the roof, where oh, you got to um, swing the leg over. Now, mm-hmm. does does your seventeen year old son spot you perchance and hold the line? Oh, I, I no, I make I make my 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 wife stands at the bottom. Okay, and takes her right. foot into the bottom row. All right, all right. wow, that's yeah. good. Um, so yeah, so Santa's up. I I'm I'm not going to be doing the ladder next year. This is it. Um, I I think we're just hanging out. It's the four of us. We're not going to see anybody. Um. It's a bummer. We always, uh, my siblings, um, we, we rotate years on Christmas Eve. Um, the six grandkids, uh, the six cousins and the three original Dodd children, um, old grown up children now. Um, and then Christmas day, we're just going to cook and be here together and have a, have a nice time. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be nice. I don't know about you, Crable. You only have Frida, uh, but literally, the dog barks every hour because there's five <laughs> new packages on the porch every hour. Yeah, yeah. And I can just hear it just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Uh, they, they become in fast and furious the last couple of days. And yeah. I, I don't have to quite worry about like hiding stuff. I mean, like I put it away, but like they don't even know that they're supposed to look yet for them. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I used to, we used to always have presents wrapped and out like under the tree. Um, but I just do not trust my children at all. To oh, not they're, just... they're, they're not going to be safe. If you yeah, that. yeah. I mean, I used to like definitely open them and yeah. you did, I would, I would, uh, you know, you, you like massage the tape like a little bit. Oh, I would never man, go so far devilish. as devilish. I would never go so far as like rip the tape off. But I, if it was like a little loose, maybe I would try and. Oh. Work, work a centimeter or two a day. To oh, we we uh, there's Peter, al- there's the Peter Crable youth stories are the Peter Crable youth stories are fascinating to me. They don't <laughs> come out often. Didn't you have a brother, Mister Siddons? And it's usually the middle child, so it might have been you. My sister was an inveterate peeker. No, she, no, it, not was there not, any none of three us. of you? Nope. Were you seeker? Present seekers, at least. Uh, I don't remember, I don't remember doing that, but I, I think maybe I did at some point, but I could never find them. My, my mom used to have to move them around constantly because my sister was just, she, she, she knew 
like when I would show her stuff excitedly on Christmas morning, when I would open it, I'd be like, look, and she would look at it. I know she had seen it. <laughs> oh, what a jerk. <laughs> I know. I mean, she, she, she was completely, uh, she was a total, total snoop. Um, well, I hope you all have a, a wonderful holiday. It is, it is time, right? We need it's it. It's time. Yep. yep. Enjoy. Yep. Enjoy. All, all yep. those, all those educators out there, um, sports staff, teachers, principals, central office people, everybody's been working around the clock since March to, to deal with the pandemic. And I know, um, I know it's going to be a nice, nice break. I'm just looking forward to not looking at the screen. Yeah. She's yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, as always, um, oh, there's an awful picture of me taken on zoom in the show notes. <laughs> um, thanks Mr. Siddons. You're welcome. Ed's Not Dead is brought to you by Pulp Education, a full-service educational media company specializing in leadership instruction and 21st century school reform. Um, you can always catch us on Twitter at, at Ed's Not Dead PC and check out the website, edsnotdead.com. Uh, fellas, in the spirit of the season, I am so grateful for our – what's our friendship go back to now? 2012, eight years? 2011. We're, we're coming up on a decade. I had zero mm-hmm. children. Yeah. You had zero children. Uh, Mr. Siddons, you didn't, you didn't even have a girlfriend. We won't even go into your past. <laughs> I did. I did have a girlfriend then. <laughs> not, not when I, you weren't dating Sarah when I, I was the you. summer. Yes, I was. I was, it was really, uh, summer of that year was the first dates. The summer you started. Uh huh. Yep. Okay. All right, all right. And so I remember okay. it very distinctly because my my I was itinerant worker in that summer, uh, and uh, Sarah was of course working full time, and I would I would go down to visit her in D.C. and uh, we would we'd go out on Wednesday night, Thursday night. And I didn't have work the next day, and she did every day. And she's like, she told me years later, she's like, it was tiring. I had to go to work every day. <laughs> We can't go out to restaurants every night. Like, why not? You were you were living the dream then. I, I was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, uh, I uh, the 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 friendship continues, and uh, we look forward to another year of the pod. Right? We're still. Right. This is, is this season four? This is season four. This is season four. All right. All right. As well, you all know, as, we're not episodic. <laughs> We're not. I know. Well, I did. I, I, I did get away from the episode, right? I know. I'm proud of you. All right. Well, uh, to our listeners, so uh, all you out there, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Uh, thanks for the support. Thanks for listening to the pod. Spread the word about Ed's Not Dead, um, and we will catch everybody in 2021. Uh, for Peter and Casey, thanks for listening, and peace out. Mm-hmm.